Hello, everybody, and welcome again to Rise Up Life on Fire podcast. And tonight we have a very special guest who I got to meet a while back at a conference. And he is the founder and executive director of a 501c3 nonprofit organization called Heroes Comforts. And like so many of us, he came to this journey of serving others through his own battle with post-traumatic stress and the struggles um, of dealing with the system and how broken it is. So please welcome Mike Crow to the show tonight. Hello. Hello. How are you doing? Well, I'm doing pretty well here in central Iowa. It's a beautiful day. So <laughs> we have a bunch of your friends, it looks like. So we've got oh, Deborah Jones. Pay attention and take notes. <laughs> <laughs> figured out how to comment. Billy, your wife. Yeah. And I believe Lori or Lori. Lori or Larry, Larry excuse me. Larry. Larry. Sorry, Larry. <laughs> <laughs> I was like L A R I. I've never she's seen our, that before. She's, I'm sorry. She's our chairperson um, for our board. Perfect. Uh, Beautiful. Yeah. So your crew is here too. Awesome. <laughs> so that helps keep you on track. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Makes me a little bit more nervous. Oh no 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 reason to be nervous. We. Okay. We're totally casual, totally conversation. And our folks that are watching are amazing. And they're just like you and me. <laughs> so a lot of them have organizations and a lot of them are struggling with the things that we're going to be talking about today. So kind of both sides, both sides of the, of the coin here tonight. Okay. So first off, since I already brought it up, why don't you tell us a little bit about your organization and what your organization does? Well, um, our organization, per se, started uh, two years ago when a group of firefighters and myself got together on Facebook Messenger, and we just did a Bible study and talked about, you know, how we were feeling and how we can help each other the best. And then as more people wanted to join that, I thought, well, let's make it a, let's just make it a closed group on Facebook, and we'll invite some other first responders. They don't have to be just firefighters. That grew a little bit um, to about 200 when I determined the potential for growth because of the significant need of, of what we provide and services. Um, we, we decided to get our 501c3 from the IRS and we became organized February of last year. Uh, we've gained some new board members. We've done some other stuff uh to and help some people um but we can talk about those specifics later so that's how that's how heroes comfort came to be out of a passion of my heart and, and um, my experiences i love that and i love the way that you come to it from kind of the same place we did that you're going to do the work either way like you did the work for a year before you started the nonprofit, right. and i think I think that's a message for people out there because I see a lot of people say, oh, I just want to start a nonprofit. And when I see that, I want to find out, you know, why do you want to start a nonprofit? What is it that you're doing or what is it you think you're going to get out of this? Because we 
do this out of passion. And I know that this is you too, that we do it out of passion and we're going to do the work anyway. And we've been doing the work for, you know, a couple years, most of us, and there isn't pay in it for us. So it's not something that we do for a big paycheck and there'll never be a big paycheck because a nonprofit that's doing the work correctly is making use of as much of those funds as possible for the end user. It's not for us. Right. So, so for those of you out there that have this idea that if I start a nonprofit, people will give me money and it'll be super easy. That is not the way this works. You probably work a lot of hours, right? <laughs> I, I do. And, you know, since it's not, I, I get no salary or anything at this moment. Um, so everything is out of pocket. So that just increases our bills at home, which means I have to work more away from the project. But then when I'm home, I'm on it as much as I can. I'm on it during the day at lunchtime. Um, it, it has it has the need for somebody to put in you know a good 25 hours a week at least into the project itself as it stands right now. you are one of the lucky ones you have a partner you have a spouse that supports you on this journey i do too and i could not do what i do without my husband so (laughs) i I would not be sitting here right now if it weren't for billy so so we know first responders have a really hard time with marriages and that, that that's one of one of the things that's oftentimes a symptom of of the career or dare i say a casualty of the career oftentimes our relationships and our families so tell us a little bit about how you met your wife and how she supported you and how amazing well, I'll, I'll back up and cover a little bit of what you said there about um kind of statistically or or however you want to whatever you want to call it but i was previously married uh for 20 years Um, the relationship was not the best to start with anyway. Um, I had some childhood trauma that I brought with me. Um, and then I went into this chaotic field that I went into and that just accumulated more and more and more stress. Well, eventually the marriage ended. Um, I ended up drunk, um, popping pills all the time. Um, to sleep it off and sleep it away. Um, and a few, about a month later after, after my then wife had left my children and I, I was able to, I was looking for a friend, honest to goodness. That's all I was doing was looking for a friend, someone to talk to. And I went on match.com, which I know everybody's thinking, Oh, match, you know, but I met Billy. Um, we, got to be good friends. We dated for a couple of years and then the time was right to get married. And, uh, on, uh, next Wednesday we'll be celebrating 10. So she's been extremely supportive, especially when it comes to the financial aspects of running a nonprofit. When, when you're paying it out of pocket, it adds up really fast. And then you have to try and balance that time of, of, of work but leave time for doing stuff for the nonprofit. Like for me, um, I've, I've been through a couple of jobs, partly because of 
my PTSD, partly because jobs were dissolved and some other things. Um, but she has supported me even as our income levels went down a little bit because of the change in jobs. She still supported me saying, I want you to give into this project. I want you to be able to, to support this and do this because I know that it's your calling. Um, so she has been extremely instrumental. I'm not saying that I haven't put a little bit of stress on her because I have, um, but she's been, she's been very gracious in understanding. And I think part of that is because um, I was still on duty for the first four, three or four years we were together. So she saw the trauma. Then she saw the trauma of the broken marriage. And, and then she, I mean, she saw, she saw, she saw it all. And she never has once, um, not once have I ever thought she was going to leave my side. So. So curious question. Go is ahead. she a first responder too? No, she is not. She's never been involved with a first responder. Um, she has no family that are first responders. So, um, and to top that off, she's got no, she doesn't really have any trauma in her background. She grew up in a very healthy, safe home. Um, I was her first marriage, no kids. Um, so she didn't have a lot of experience with mental illness, um, mental health disorders. So when I came along, it was really hard for her. Um, to try and grasp an understanding, but she's stuck with me. She's been to therapy with me. She's, um, you know, we, we go to church service together. We we do all those things together. And again, not one time have I ever felt like she was going to say, Mike, I'm, I'm done with you. And you're, even though she's probably had a right, in my opinion, um, you know, um, to, to, to say I can't do this, but she's she's fought through it and she's now one of my biggest supporters. I love that. Relationships are really important. They are. They are, especially when you're when you're in the service, but even when you're out of the service, which is hard to maintain. So passion and purpose are a huge big deal, especially as you leave a first responder career that becomes your identity is your nonprofit where you focus that passion and purpose it is now um for the first three or four years after i was uh let go i, I was ultimately retired but um i was let go at first um uh, that the passion to serve in that capacity was gone. Um, but I knew I had to do something and I identified myself even three or four years later, I would say, yeah, I'm paramedic Mike Crow or I'm firefighter Mike Crow. That's, that was, and my therapist taught me this, that was me identifying myself as what I do, not who I am. Right. And so it took, it took me a little while to, to break that, but I've, I've been able to get away from identifying myself that way. Um, you know, if it comes around, I'll mention, yeah, I'm a former retired or I'm a retired paramedic firefighter or, or whatever, but I don't, I don't introduce myself that way. I don't, that's not the first words out of my mouth like it used to be. So you started out as a paramedic. 
I did. I started out as a paramedic. I started out as an EMT back in 92. And um, then I went to high school immediately after that. And then a couple years later, I went to paramedic school. I served uh, 23, 22, 23 years as a paramedic. And then um, 10 of those years uh, was with a fire department as a medic and firefighter. So what, is that what you wanted to be when you were a kid? You know what? People ask me that and, and I think, no, I don't think so, but maybe I did. Um, I grew up in a small town of about 600 people at the time. And when there was a fire or an ambulance call or anything like that, the town siren would go off like it does today in the town that I live in. Um, so when I would hear that siren, I'd be like 11 or 12. I would run out my front door, get get in the middle of the main street and watch for the fire trucks or even the responders just responding in their cars because I remember seeing how fast it went around corners and skidded around the corners. And, you know, that that was an adrenaline rush for me. And um, that's, I think that that is, um, the adrenaline rush is what steered me down this path. So did you do anything else before that? Yeah, I was, uh, I served in the military twice, well, three times if you consider the National Guard. I served a total of 14 years between the Navy and the Army. Um, I briefly did some work between that and um, working full-time as an EMT, EMTI. Uh, I was a district loss prevention supervisor for the Kansas City District of Walmart. So you got a civilian job and you got bored. <laughs> yeah, I, got, I got bored. It was, it was an interesting job because, I mean, I did investigations. You know, I, I, I went to schools to enter, to learn how to interview people. And, and I started out just catching shoplifters. And then I went up to the, to the um, bigger teams and uh, got my own district. It was, it was extremely busy. It was too busy for the, low amount of pay. I was away from home all the time. Um, it, it was probably more hours away from home than the shift work at the fire department was. So yes, I got bored with the job itself, but I got burnt out really fast. So let's talk a little bit about the post-traumatic stress. Let's talk a little bit about your career. Okay. So how, how long how long did it take for you to start feeling like things were not healthy for you? Um, so that would have been 2009. I can identify it. Um, 2009. So 93, 90, let's say, let's say 95 after all my schooling, uh, 95 to 2009. Um, what is that? Five, 14 years. And then I worked for an additional, uh, four years after that. So do you, you feel like yours was one specific call that, that was problematic for you, or do you feel like it was the accumulated chronic? I think, I think it was chronic. Um, you know, there was a time in my life when I would have said, yeah, it's this one call and I could describe that call to you, which I'm not going to do on this format. Um, but I think the, I grew up in a traumatic home um went into a toxic relationship so i had all that trauma and then i started being exposed to everybody else's trauma over and over and over again 
my first call as a full-time EMTI in Topeka was a home invasion shooting in the face. That was my very first call. And those kind of things stick with you. Um, so um, my a, um, an artist friend of mine who's on a lot of these first responder websites, his name is Rob Leaf, and I don't know if you've noticed him. He does a lot of artwork. Yeah. He, um, he talked to me one time about what that looks like in my brain. And I described it to him as a, one of those heavy six drawer steel filing cabinets full of folders. You know, at one time they were all nice and neatly put away in there. Unless somebody knows different, I don't know how to forget memories. Um, so I had to do something with them. So I compartmentalized like probably 90% of the people watching do. Um, but it came to a point where you couldn't close those drawers anymore. The files were sticking out and laying all over the floor. None of the drawers would close. There was smoke coming off the top of it. And he had, he had it. So my skull was flipped open so you could see my brain and that's what was in place in my brain. So I think it was a, I think when I realized it was 2009, 14, 15 years in, um, but then when I actually did something about it, it was quite a bit later. And you and I had a wonderful conversation about the systems. Um, Cause my, one of my focus, one of my focuses is really uh, getting to the bottom of the systems and how, how can we solve this problem from the beginning before it happens? instead of waiting until the end when everybody is trying to recover from PTSD. And so you had a really, I hate to say typical, but it really is typical. You had a really um, tumultuous uh, process. Once you realized that you needed help, how did that go for you? It went terrible. Um, when I realized I needed help was after that specific call that I referred to in 2009. Um, I can name the child that was involved. I can tell you everything, everything about that day. Um, we ran with, at the time, six person crews and we ran EMS as well as fire. And at the time, those that were working as the paramedic of the day were also the person to take the nozzle in on a fire. So you kind of played dual roles. Well, the call came in and I'm not going to get graphic, but the call came in as a as a child burnt on a stove. I'm thinking little Johnny or Susie put her put their hand up on the stove and got burnt. As we were getting ready to pull out of the garage, um, dispatch came back and said it was a child burning on the stove. So we all went to the fire trucks, and the child was pronounced dead by two other firefighters. One had been a paramedic for almost 30 years. One was fresh out of school. So he had all the book intelligence um, and they declared him dead. And my chief at the time wanted me to go in and pronounce the child again. And I knew that just on the circumstances, um, that that's not something that needed to be done. Um, but I was, I was later, I was later told I was told to do it to toughen me up. Um, I went to, I went to, um, I went to some of my fellow 
firefighters. I went to uh, the union president at the time, told them I needed help. They, of course, they listened the best they could. They sent me on to my captain. My captain just was ready to send me on to the chief. Um, and, and the chief allowed me, we had a new chief at that time. And I kind of explained to him what was going on. It was a very short time frame between that incident and the new chief. So it took me a little bit of time to gain up the courage to come forward, first of all. Um, I would say probably about six months. Um, but when I finally did come forward, it was, well, why don't you take some time off? Um, use your vacation, use your comp time, use your PTO time, use your sick time, whatever you got to do, and and see if you can get yourself right. And it's like, okay, I mean, that's what I'll do. Went to a couple therapists, did not did not mesh with them because they weren't um, they weren't trauma informed. So they, they and not because they didn't care. I want to make that clear. It's just because they didn't have the the training and the the knowledge that certain therapists do. So I burned up all that time. I still was I still wasn't right. I was still drinking. I'm still sleeping as much as I could. Um, my relationship with my kids had suffered. So I went back and I told the chief when my time was all burnt up, I said, I need help. I, I, I need, I need some help. I did not get offered an EAP program. Um, I didn't get offered any help at all other than to be put on FMLA. Um, so I burnt up my FMLA, um, still trying to find the right therapist, um, eventually found them. But only after my FMLA was burned up and I went back to the chief and he told me I needed to be on a truck that day. And I said, chief, I'm not ready. And his response was, well, you either need to pull your bootstraps up, do the job or find a different one. So I knew I couldn't, I wasn't going to do any good for anybody because that 2009 call wasn't my last call. I had more traumatic calls after that. My final call was, was a very traumatic call as well. Um, and that was it. I, I said, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. And I went and told him, I said, I need some help. That's what he told me. And unfortunately I had to put in my resignation. Um, my retirement paperwork was already in, but it hadn't come back yet. So the assistance I got, albeit from the firefighters and I'll even give the captain a little bit of credit. They, they were concerned, um, and cared, um, but looking back, I think it was more of a, a care. Can he do the job? Can he have my back? Those kind of things. But the assistance I got from from the system that I worked in and the system in Iowa um, did not did not help. No, and you brought up a really good a really good point that is not known by a lot of people. Therapists are not all created equal. And just because someone is a licensed therapist, I love therapists and I'm never going to say anything bad about therapists. They always, they always get a little like bristly when I start saying this, but to handle trauma and to handle specific types of trauma takes a lot of additional education. And it's not part of the standard uh, therapist education. It's, it's stuff you've got to go do additionally. I had to, it took me two years to find a degree that even allowed, that even had a military trauma 
aspect to it. And, and I'm one of three people in the program. So trauma is a super, it's a very niche thing. It's something that most people don't have, don't have experience with. And your therapist, um, has to be able to understand what's happening with you. They have to understand what's happening with your brain and with your body and your nervous system and your emotions. And they also have to be able to handle the experiences that you're going to talk about. So do your due diligence when you call to make an appointment, ask the question, ask if the therapist is experienced with first responders, ask if the therapist is trauma specialized, because those things will make the difference some of my clients have come to me and said, I went to a therapist years ago and it was the one time I went. And when I told my story, when I said what was bothering me, my therapist cried or my therapist said, how could you or something like that? And those things are life changing for you guys. Like that's that's a, I'm never going to go to therapy again. So we have to make sure that your first experience is at least as safe as possible. Yeah. My first few experiences were, I mean, none of them cried or anything like that. One of them, one of them did the obligatory. So tell me about your worst call. Well, I, I know she meant well, I know she did, but uh, she was not um, culturally, I'm not going to use that word because that might offend somebody. She wasn't trained in in trauma um and the other two were not either so it was you know it was like well have you tried this or let's put you on these medicines or it wasn't getting down to the to the root uh, of my problems and it wasn't addressing you know how i was how i was identifying myself and that was that was pretty pretty bad yeah so your organization, you actually have refer, you do referrals through, yes. and you have vetted the people that you send people to. I have, I have assisted in vetting. I'm not going to take all the credit in that. Um, Molly Jones, who's an advisor to our board, she's with the International Association of Firefighters Behavioral Center of Excellence. Um, she's their care coordinator. Um, she has went through and vetted about 2,500 different therapists around the country. She shares those lists with me. And then I proceed to call them and talk to them a little bit more. Um, my conversations are more, hey, would you be willing to help one of our first responders that's come forward to us um, and give them some free counseling? Because they don't want it to go through their insurance because they're agent, they're afraid their agency will find out, or they don't want to go to, you know, the, the clinic, the office, because they don't want anybody to see them or whatever the case may be. So we do, um, that's the one thing that, that I'm most proud of that we do is referral and resources. Um, that's our main mission. Uh, we have uh, therapists in, I think it's seven different States right now. Um, with the with the goal of being in all 50 states um, but we have I mean if you name it we've we've probably done it or are trying to do it as far as um, what a peer support group does or 
or um, a referral program. I, I don't even know what you can call us, really. You are, you're the buddy system. <laughs> okay, we're a buddy system. You're the person that's there to fill in the gaps. Right. That's, and that's right. That's, I would agree with that. That is what we are trying to do because we know that there's a significant gap between being at the agency or department or wherever and being in the real safe place that you need to be. Um, so we try to bridge that gap. And, you know, um, most of all of our therapists have either, um, uh, one of them should be watching. Her name is Debbie. Um, she is a therapist of 13 years, firefighter of 25. So she's really knowledgeable in the culture and she she provides treatment for first responder we might refer to her at no cost to them and we ask for up to three sessions but therapists know that's it's not really enough so several of our therapists want to go from beginning to end with that client at no cost which is which is huge. It gives them a sense of, you know, financial security. It gives them a sense of confidentiality. Um, they know that that we're, we mean business. Um, when we say we're here to help you, that's what we're going to do. Perfect. And you know, I'm always here for you too, if you ever. If Thank you. Ever you. I appreciate that. So. Um, and yes, Deb Deborah Jones is on now. And she says, you're absolutely correct. Not every therapist is made for trauma. Uh, one of my biggest pet peeves. <laughs> I always say, like, I wish there was a way for therapists to know ahead of time a little bit more about what a client is coming to them for so that they would have the opportunity to say, I'm sorry, this isn't a good fit. Right. And, so and you know, these problems. You yeah, and that and you mentioned something um, a little bit ago about um, um, being prepared, and it's it's my belief that preparation should be the number one intervention, preparation for the traumatic event and how it's going to affect you, and then the second step is the response. How are we going to respond to that? We're going to send you to counseling? Are we going to refer you to the center of excellence? Are we going to send you to a sub to detox? You know, what are we going to do for you? Are we going to pay your, your wife's rent while you're in detox, which we've done before? Um, we've bought groceries. We've, you know, whatever it is that needs to be done to fill in that gap, as you said, um, we do it. But, but going back to what I was just talking about, prevention and preparedness should be the first thing that we think about but unfortunately this kind of stuff does not uh, just one day is all we got in paramedic school on mental health um and it wasn't even it was just more like you can you can um tie them down with this situation you can't with this you can give them haldol you can give them versed you can give them all these medications and you transport them that's all that, you know, it was, and I've learned that at least in Iowa, there is a push to start training peer support um, in the academies. 
but the fire service there is nothing like that they have a peer support program that they tried to push out in 2015 um it's still in existence but they're in need of help now continuing it so I think that I think if they would get that in the police academies, the correctional training, nursing school, whatever, I think that would be beneficial in preparing for that traumatic experience because everyone's going to have it. That is my mission. Absolutely. Uh, the thesis that I'm working on right now literally has a full framework for pre-hire at hire for resiliency training ongoing throughout the entire career and then retirement prep and post-retire. Oh, that's awesome. It has, and it's a modular system that's easy to teach, easy to train. Organizations can pick it up very easily, low cost. Um, it incorporates the use of coaches and consultants in the early phases. So you're not relying on therapists when they don't have enough therapists to go around. So you're not stressing out an already overstressed system. It literally is. Um, it's completely financially and well, real world. It's real world applicable, and it's something that we can absolutely do. This isn't something that we can't fix, and it just takes a little common sense, a little logic, and a little, like you said, a little preparedness. We know these things. We know what works already. We just have to look at things from different angles because we might not have scientific research on what happens with firefighters when we apply the trauma tools or what happens with police when we apply trauma tools. But we've been studying scientifically. We've been studying trauma for many, many years. We know what happens in the nervous system. We know what happens in the brain. We've seen the brain imaging. We, we know the tools, we know the answers. We're just not putting all the pieces in the puzzle together. So that is actually going to be published soon. And along with it is a research proposal to apply the program to some of my local organizations. So if I can get funding to start that, we will have our first longitudinal study going by the beginning of next year, if all goes well. Awesome. Um, so. and like you mentioned, that's we have we have the scientific research, and like you said, we know that the brain physically changes with with trauma. It's not just an emotion. I mean, there's release of the cortisol that makes part of the brain bigger and another part of the brain smaller, and um, it, it's um, we have all that knowledge. But my my question is. How do we pass that knowledge on to the officials and the administration that's making those decisions on what to do with this police officer, firefighter, nurse, whatever? We show up. We go to the meetings. <laughs> that's, where it starts. That's, that's what I've been doing It's literally start in your local city, go to all of their planning meetings, get connected with your local leaders and then move up from there. It really is about being seen. It's about being heard. It's about getting in front of the right people. And when you say the right things in front of the right people, you start to get noticed. Things get done. 
I've noticed that the agency that I came from, uh, they they have just started implementing a peer support program. They have another um, psychologist working with them on on the implementation of that. And um, uh, boy, I just lost my train of thought. Sorry. Um, no, no worries. Anyway. Isn't it amazing that not every organization even has peer support in place yet? It, it is. It is. Especially when I look at fire departments, you know, um, Molly and her crew came to the state of Iowa to teach anybody that wanted to come and learn how to build a peer support program and what it was about. And I think she had four, four agencies represented out of the whole state. I mean, granted, I was not a huge state with, you know, Kansas City or Houston sized town, you know, cities, but we have, we experienced the same, same trauma, you know, in one way or another. Um, so I, I find that interesting. You got to, that you just attend the meetings. I, I hadn't thought about that. So I might have to talk to you a little bit more about that at some time. Absolutely. I think, I know everybody in nonprofits, I've noticed there's two sides. There are the nonprofits, well, like us, who are aware that we can't do this alone, that it literally is going to take a tidal wave to make the changes that we want. And that if we all stand side by side, we can actually push some stuff. We can actually make some shit happen. And if we all try to do this alone and be all competitive because there's only so much money to go around or so much attention or whatever it is that makes people super competitive in this world, uh, it's just not like that. There's so much, there really is funding. There really is opportunity. There's enough for all of us. And if we stand together and if we speak in one voice and we get all on the same page, we're going to be heard and we're gonna make these changes we actually can transform the world if we stand together. But if we don't. I, right. I've, I've got one person on our board is a state legislator here in Iowa. Um, we're really happy about that. She's signed off on our programs and um, has given us letters of endorsement and stuff. And then we've also talked to Senator Joni Ernst um, out in Washington twice she's she's all on board for us she wants to hear what we have to say um she just wants some more detailed um uh, detailed outline or or whatnot of how to implement these changes so that's something that i've kind of been working on um but with everything else i'm, I'm trying to do that's not that's not taking priority unfortunately and i don't want it to be that way um, so I've, I've challenged my board members to, you know, step up and do, do some committees and, and make contacts with people in local organizations and, and things like that to try and try and initiate that change at that level. See, you're already on the path. You've got it. You know what you're doing. <laughs> Not really. I'm just flying by the seat, but it's work. It's working out. I mean, Maybe I do know what I'm doing, but it, this is not, this is absolutely not what I envisioned myself doing 10 years ago. No, me neither. No, I, I had no idea what I, I knew I was doing trauma. I had no idea where it was going to go. 
these things take on a life of their own. The need speaks for itself. As as people come to you and as you meet new new people and you talk about the organizations and you talk about their experiences and you just listen, you see the patterns. The patterns are there. We know what's going wrong. Well, now one, of things, to fix it. <laughs> one of the things I try and tell tell people, or just give them an example of a, of a study that was done in 2015. It was right after Hurricane Katrina, so there was a little bit of, you know, um, possible skewing of of numbers because of that, or, or or that might not be the right word. You know what I'm trying to say, but um, it studied police officers in a survey, and three quarters of the officers that were surveyed admit to having an exceptional traumatic experience. Over half of them did not report it. And half of them also um, knew personally a law enforcement officer or knew of a law enforcement officer that had completed suicide. And, you know, when you, the last study done on um, the substance use among officers was that I found was like 2011. Um, and it was, it was upwards 24 to 47%. I mean, the, the, like you said, the numbers are there. All you got to do is look at it and say there's a problem. But I have, my struggle is finding people to listen. I've reached out to several depart, larger departments around here and just haven't got any response from the chiefs or anything like that. So um, I'll be looking for, for some help on ideas to to get to get our voices heard. To get into those yeah. places yeah yeah no it's challenging that's the hardest part those are pro the leaders of departments the leaders of hospitals the leaders of firehouses like those are the hardest people to get because city administrators understand that there's a problem and something needs to be done um i think what we're seeing in our departments and in our organizations is there is still a really heavy stigma for them too. And so many of them are, you know, they're, they're the good old boys. They're at the, the top of their career. They've been there for a long time. So the way things used to be is the way they kind of have it in their head that it should be forever. We're not. You know, what's funny about what you say there though, Krista is they say that about stuff that matters about personnel when it comes to technology and equipment there's you know they'll apply for grants for millions of dollars for the latest and greatest of everything the new toy um, when it comes to spending money on the personnel that's not in the budget so we're going to stay away from that one a little bit i think there's also a fear of if we admit that there's a problem then we have to face what that says about us right yeah is that like wait if 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 I admit that the men and women in my department are vulnerable to committing suicide, I have to admit that I'm not a great leader. I have to admit that I've failed my people. I have to admit that I have done something wrong, basically. So there is like this, wait, I can just pretend like everything's okay. My people would never do that. My people are happy. My people are, you know, my, my crew doesn't have mental illness. That's everyone else. Until, right. until their firefighter in Boise, Idaho, 
goes into the station on duty and hangs himself in front of everybody or the police officer on lunch break in Kansas City drives over the border to Overland Park, Kansas and uses his service weapon to take his life. You know, then then what are those leaders thinking? That's what they need to be thinking about. Not not. Oh, let's just ignore it. They need to think about what's going to happen if I do ignore it. Right. Well, Deborah just said, research shows that if the chief chief of these departments mentions their own mental health experiences, others will start talking to. Yes, they absolutely. If they lead by example and if they open the door, then everyone else feels safe to open the door. Nobody wants to be the weak link. Nobody wants to be the guy that needs to be toughened up. Everybody wants to be seen as dependable and competent. Yeah. Competent. They got it together. Right. That doesn't happen to me. That happens to someone else over there. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. And so we got to break this warrior mentality that, that, you know, warriors bleed. Warriors are injured. And PTSD is not a disorder. Right. It is an injury. And until we can get the language to change, and I'm even trying to go even further than that. I want it to change from traumatic stress, which is a general term that covers any trauma, to occupational traumatic injury. So we're talking about what it is and who should be responsible for it. If we say it's an occupational injury, then we put the blame and the responsibility where it belongs. It's part of the job. It's required. If we say it's just traumatic stress, that's just everyone's issue, right? But this is part of the job. It's a requirement. It's unavoidable. So why don't we just change the language so people actually start realizing that, wait, this is something that I'm responsible for. This is something I need to take care of my crew for. It exists. It's real. And it's an injury like any other. If you cut your arm off, we're going to take you to the hospital. If your brain is injured because your nervous system has been jacked up because of these experiences over and over and over again, we should be saying the same thing. How do we help you heal? Not, oh, are you going to be there for me when I need you to have my back? Right. Or toughen up. Pull your bootstraps up. That. Right? We don't say and, that. And when I first heard that phrase, uh, somebody was talking, I, I think it was in Nashville. I was in Nashville at a conference or at uh, SISM training. And some of the guys from the National Fire Department were, were talking about that very same thing and said that uh, they were having a debriefing not too long before that. And um, if you know anything about debriefings, they try to keep the administration out because it doesn't have anything to do with the call that, that you're talking about or whatever. Um, but their chief came in in the middle of it, sat down and the, the person hosting stopped and everybody stopped talking and started looking down. Um, that, that's a, that's a bad sign when your chief comes in and you're, you know, you put your head down and you're supposed to be talking about something that affected you personally. Um, that's not good. And then to say, um, in that meeting, Hey, you need to pull your bootstraps up. This is a bad, what is, what was it? He said, he said it was a, he didn't like the way that it looked for the Nashville fire department for that, for that debriefing. 
and then he got up and walked out. So, and I'm not trying to call anybody out or throw anybody under the bus at all, because I think it's more of a, I think there's some worriness about it, about coming forward or dealing with it. You know, you're worried about how's that going to affect staffing? How's that going to affect budget? You know, all these, all these things, but then they're forgetting to think about what is my police officer going through? What is my firefighter going through? humanizing it and and trying to understand how they must feel instead of being you know an all administrative you know you know what i mean yeah and we don't know what we don't know so right exactly if you've been off the street for a while or if you've never even been on the street mm -hmm. You don't know what you don't know. You can't understand what other people are going through. So to sit to sit back and, and be making decisions about people who are having different experiences is a big challenge. So we have to make the conversation common. We have to talk about it so that people who don't see it, who don't experience it, can understand a little better how, how normal and common this is. Like, the thing about the numbers is they lie because we look at statistics and we go, oh, my gosh, you know, that's a really high number. We say, you know, what, over 30 percent are going to have PTSD. But the, the problem with these numbers at any given time is that you're probably looking at a quarter of the people who are struggling because people aren't talking about it. People aren't saying what's going on for them. So so we can't look at the suicidal ideation numbers and think that that's accurate. We can't look at the attempted suicide numbers and think it's accurate. We can't look at the PTSD numbers or sub-threshold. When we get into the conversation of who has diagnosable PTSD and who is not diagnosable but suffering just the same, who is struggling with nightmares and anxiety and fear about going to work and all of the different symptoms, but they just don't happen to have all of them at the same time in a way that's diagnosable. So all of those people who are just starting that scale, who are creeping up and up and up, it's so much more than what the statistics show. And the statistics uh, and that, are bad. And, and the thing with the statistics is you're not getting all the reporting. You're not getting all the reporting of the first responder suicides. Um, you're not getting all the reporting of um, first responders that are going in for um, inpatient mental health. Um, I mean, I, I know that that's a fact because <laughs> I experienced it. I took a local firefighter uh, who was uh, deep in in the PTSD, PTSI, whatever you want to call it, uh, had been drinking really heavily and wanted wanted help. But there's three hospitals in Des Moines. And he wasn't going to any of them because he knows everybody there because he's a Metro firefighter. And so I took him 90 miles to the university hospital and waited around on him and anyways, got him in, got him in someplace. But, um, you know, those numbers don't get reported because nobody knows about them. No. And, and it'd be, it'd be, It'd be immoral to to ask 
you know, ask any questions. I think if I, if I knew a firefighter was, had been in inpatient mental health, it wouldn't be right to ask him. So how was your experience or what'd you really go in for or things like that? So that's the other work we do. That that? The, the private and confidential aspect that therapists who work for the departments work for the departments, yeah. not the employees. So employees don't trust them because it's not private and confidential right. because they report to the supervisors. So how many, how many of us are going to go in and say, yeah, I, I, I had these su suicidal thoughts when we know <laughs> that that person is going to say, oh, well, we should maybe put this person on desk duty. Or do that. Or get them out somehow. Right. So, a lot of states, a lot of states I know you use workman's comp for stuff like that, for, for um, the pro the time between um, the, the end of their service until they get their retirement or disability. They use workman's comp. Iowa doesn't use any kind of in between there is no workman's comp is affiliated with it um now there is if you're you know if you've shattered your shoulder but yeah. if it's a mental health issue there's no workman's comp involved so you're yeah it's just there's so many people falling through the cracks because there's no there's and i don't think there would be any good way to report all that no but see, again, that's an example of a physical injury is treated completely different than an injury to your nervous system and your brain that is trauma-based. Right. So, I mean, we're talking about mental health, but we're not talking about um, disorders per se that that the individual is genetically born with or predisposed right. to. We're talking about a, a cumulative damage over time that happens due to exposure to something. So, I mean, we're literally talking about the same kind of concept as carpal tunnel or, you know, a, a repetitive use kind of injury. We're talking about an injury and we're not treating it like an injury. So until we can get that universal understanding that if we treat it like an injury, we can treat our people correctly that 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 kind of retirement situation won't be in play anymore because it won't be a mental health condition it will be an injury and it will be respected as such if that makes sense it makes absolute sense you know i i've heard people say oh no we got to keep it a disorder so we can um you know uh, give them a diagnosis according to the dsm-5 or whatever and then you hear the opposite. No, it's an injury. And it is. I believe it is. And I didn't really I didn't really recognize that until I saw my first imaging of the changes in the brain, mm -hmm. um, the development of different pathways within the brain uh, that are broken. Um, so, yeah, it, it is. I agree with you 100%. It is an injury. And I like the idea of the occupational aspect of it. Yeah, I understand the argument of the DSM and the diagnostic codes, and these are our billing codes, and we have to use this for billing. And it, it does make sense to one to some degree, but it would take very little to switch it from a mental health 
condition, which goes in a DSM, to actually changing it to a diagnostic that's a medical diagnostic, which would totally flip that argument on its butt. <laughs> yes, I agree. So somebody's taking that if we insist on keeping it categorized with mental illness, if we actually flipped it and made it an illness, we could switch it a little. But I mean, it's all about money. It's all about billing. We're not worried about that. We're worried about taking care of our people and making sure that this gets handled. Right. So, so that's an administrative issue. They can figure that out. I'm sure it's really not that complicated. <laughs> oh, what is, but we tend to complicate things ourselves. So, Right. Yeah. So now that you're doing this big work, what is your, what's your five-year vision? Well, our five-year vision is to be in um, 15 to 20 states. And then also, uh, I want to call it a, more of a three-year vision for this part. But um, we want to build a or renovate a current building. Um, a am going to call it a respite center. Um, it, it would be, um, we call it Home for Heroes. We're either going to build it on Lake Okoboji here in Iowa, which is very beautiful all year round, even in the winter, or possibly down in the Ozarks in Missouri or northern Arkansas, where the weather stays nice. Um, but it's going to it's going to house it's going to have the capability to house uh, six to ten for substance use disorders. Um, it's going to have the capability to uh, have inpatient mental health. And then it's going to have a section where if a first responder just needs a three-day getaway to decompress, he or she can come and they can bring their spouse or significant other with them. Um, so that's that's in our three-year goal. Um, we already know what grants we got to apply for. We've already got some, some significant people to sign off on it. Um, it's just a matter of finding somebody to get us the 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 so oh, the plans the the design contractors that's what I was trying to think of so that's that's right. probably our three year goal but it may be more like five that is an amazing goal I love that you and I are so in alignment I love it <laughs> so much uh, so we want to do long term recovery. Uh, right. centers. We want to create centers where people who do not have addiction problems, who are just struggling, just, just right, uh, struggling with the, the PTSD side of things, uh, trauma reactivity. Uh, we want to give a space where people who are not handling being out in society very well uh, for the time being. So a lot of like military reintegration can be really challenging for some uh first responders who are just hitting that retirement phase and they don't really have anything outside of that and they don't really know what they're going to do with themselves so those kind of gray areas where there just isn't a place for people to go and uh basically just recreate themselves their identity and the life that they want to live so 
We want to have these places where people can go and if there's a homelessness issue, we want to be able to build a tiny house. So we're going to have tiny houses and they can do all of the interior design and decorating themselves and create their space. And then if they need to take that with them when they leave, then they can do that. If they don't, then they can uh, leave it, leave it for the next person. Uh, and then of course, the equine therapy is a really big deal. So we like love the idea of animals. Animals rebuild empathy and connection and compassion. And that's a really big deal for reintegration. So we're looking at a really alternative facility to what's currently available. Um, so that's kind of where we're going to is, wait, there's a gap. <laughs> yeah. Let's create this facility that that's for the people that can't go to these other facilities because they just don't, they don't fit. And one of the thoughts that Larry had was um, if we did this center someplace warmer like Arkansas or something, she she would like to implement equine therapy. Um, we don't want to take anybody's idea and reinvent the wheel. We we may want to change up some things. We want we want to be different, um, not not for any kind of pride issue, but just because if this has already been done, right several times and we need more of it but tweaked a little bit that's that's what we want to do because we don't want to take anybody's concepts or, what's that you want to fit the people that don't have a place they can already go exactly exactly yep i'm very happy to have you on the show tonight and to be thank able to share your mission yeah thank you for the invite Appreciate so it. as as we close What's the last thing that you would want to say to your audience? Uh, are they mostly first responders or what, who's my audience really? Military, first responders, families. Um, for all the above, the family included. Um, the one thing that I've learned is to not give up hope at all. You, you give in to... Um, if you give into it just one time, that's going to set you on a path that you don't want to go down. And I, I say that from personal experience. Don't give up on hope. Don't give up on people. People are there to help. Um, if they say they're confidential, trust them, unless you hear differently for some reason. Um, and finally, step out and admit you need help when you need help. There's no, there's no being brave. There's no um, uh, classification of courage or anything that goes along with that. You're a human being under the badge, under the uniform. You are just like me, and I am just like you. Perfect. Thank you so much for being here with us this evening. Thank you, Krista. So thank you guys so much for being here. Don't forget that if you like the show or if you love our cause at Battle to Be and you would like to leave a donation, you can do that underneath the support this podcast button or go to battletobe.org and you can see it right down there, battletobe.org. And if you are looking for Mike, you can find him at Heroes Comforts. And we will put his link 
when we post this on Anchor, we will put his link underneath so you can find him easily. And help us get the word out. Help us change the message. Help us shatter the stigma. We can't do this alone. If we all stand up together, we create a tidal wave of change and we literally can transform the world. So one suicide is too many. Let's get ahead of PTSD. Let's start talking about it as what it is. And let's make the world a better and brighter place where our frontline and first responders can have the careers that they dreamed of, can maintain the families that they deserve, and can have the futures that we all want to have. So we owe them better. They deserve more. So Krista Fee, Battle to Be, signing out.